Hello and welcome to the Denver Diatribe, a weekly discussion of culture, news, and stuff as it pertains to Denver, Colorado, the most astonishing metropolitan area between Omaha and Salt Lake. This week on the show, a glimpse into Denver's art scene, the growth of TED and TEDx, and the continuing marginalization of focus on the family and the religious right. With us in studio are Joel Warner, staff writer at Westward, and our special guest, Denver graphic designer, artist, impresario, extraordinaire, and the subject of Joel's cover story in Westward, Rick Griffith. I am washed-up author and journalist John Dicker. Let's get into it. Uh, Denver art scene, Joel and I admittedly know nothing about this, so we bought in Rick, who knows a lot, well, a lot and and a little, and cares both a lot and a little. Yeah, I I know significantly uh, less than I care. (laughs) <laughs> as, as, as it turns out I mean, you know, the, the art scene in Denver uh, To synopsize my experience in it um, In 2000, I attempted to, you know Participate wholly in the art scene in Denver By being part of a, a co-op gallery on Santa Fe And by, I think it, actually it was 2000 Yeah, it was it was October of 2000 that I decided to do that and by January of 2001, I had quit, shut it down, and moved on. It was such a disaster, a wholesale disaster. Why was it a disaster? Was it because of something that you did, or was it because of something about the culture here? Neither really. I think it's a, it's a little bit about how I perceive business, and that I wasn't in uh, the art scene to put my latest renderings on the fridge, you know, to, to be sort of noted for my prettiness. I, I did it because I wanted to expand the scale of my business into what I was already doing, which was making works that were presentable in an artistic context. Whether they were judges art or not, it was entirely up to somebody else. But I knew that my studio wasn't really the venue for that kind of work and that I wanted a year-round environment or location to show it. But it was a disaster because the way I view business is that if – you know, if you're going to speculate, if you're going to be called an expert in your field, you have to learn how to speculate. And speculation means risk. And in every situation I sort of noted, and even the one that I got myself involved in, the gallerist, the person in charge of the gallery, had zero risk on the table. And that all the risk was being played out by the people who could least afford to have any part of that, which were the people who were making the work. So it's like the gallery owner says, okay, to hang here, you need to pay us blah, blah, blah. And you will still take a cut of your whatever you sell and et cetera, et cetera. Is that what you're describing? Yeah, it was an enterprise-level scheme for only one person. <laughs> In order to succeed, you clearly had to pay the landlord. And even though it was a co-op gallery, it, it, the the mechanics of it were that – the gallery and the person holding the lease on the gallery space stood to gain the greatest amount out of anybody's sale, of anybody's work, and that the burden of drawing the audience was still on you, the burden of making the work was still on you, paying for the work still on you, hanging the work still on you. And so, you know, in my world, it's like if I wanted that much burden, well, I already had it. I mean, that was the honest truth. I already had it, so I didn't have to pay anybody else to keep that burden alive for me. You know, the, the the mechanics had never changed for me. The burden was still on me, and if I wanted to do this, that I would just end up paying more and having my work priced according to the mechanics of that relationship instead of priced according to the value that I think it had. It was a disaster. It took me three months to figure out it was a disaster. It took me three months to figure out that most of the people that I was in the gallery with 
had a totally different set of understandings about how business or the business of art would work, and I just had to leave. Now, does that seem like that's a pretty common scenario facing a lot of Denver creative types over the past decade or so? Yeah, probably so. I mean, I, I wouldn't put it past any of that. Ask somebody, what are the mechanics of your relationship with your gallerist? Are they taking a risk? Is it a risk that benefits you? That's That's got to be out there. You know, I, I like to draw back to sort of the vague history of being a gallerist at the turn of the last century. You know, not this last century, but the one before that maybe, right? So a gallerist might show up at a studio and say, I love this body of work. I could see a way to sell that. Sell me your next show. Here's 10,000 francs or 100,000 lira or in whatever sense, 5,000 bucks, you know? Here's a pile of money. Give me your next show. I want 20 paintings. And the artist would say, great, that'll keep me in whores and booze long enough, and I'll make the work. And uh, and the gallerist would send some pissoir off to pick up the work, and uh, they'd pick up the work, put it in the gallery, and then he'd sell it for three, four times the amount. Whatever. The point is, is that if you want to call yourself an expert in the art world, then just like any other expert in any other market, you have to learn how to speculate in order to make your money. What has happened over whatever period of time, maybe it's 100 years, maybe it's less, but what I observed was that the risk that was associated with the expert was mitigated and put on the backs of the artists. And so the artist pays to have a spot in a gallery? Oh, yeah. Okay. Artist pays to have a spot in the gallery. The artist takes all the burden of all the hanging of the show and the making of the work. There's no upfronts. There's no retainers. It's, you know, it's basically pay, 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 and hopefully sell. Why has this concept of a risk-taking been removed from the art industry? I can only guess. I can only guess that it's because there are so many damn experts that the real experts didn't have to take on risk. That the mechanics changed because there were too many galleries. The mechanics changed because there were too many people doing it the other way that real experts decided that they didn't have to take the risk at all. Kind of veering off topic here, uh, but do you find that Denver attracts any particular artistic type, or does it not attract that many compared to places, I guess, where you think they would go? New York, L.A., maybe Chicago? Oh, if we're going to compare artists in New York, L.A., and Chicago, I would say that the artist in Denver has a day job. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, if, if that's what you want to do. But, you know, there are artists all over the world that have day jobs, and there are even great artists with other um, fields of inquiry and or in income. Let me, let me look back and see. Painting over printmaking, probably so. Relatively small printmaking community out here, which is uh, what I assume I, I would be put in. But like I said, I've actually... I've actually gone outside of representation. I no longer seek representation of any kind. Mm -hmm. You know, like I like to keep my prices where the people I know can afford it. Mm -hmm. And if I was going to seek representation, of course, I would double the price. As it as it turns out, I'm thrilled to be part of the art community in Denver. The people that have achieved at the highest level, people like Dale Chisman, um, I've had enormous amount of respect for them and enormous amount of respect for the way they've made their work. And they are, they have been, and Dale was, interested in and compelled by a series of questions and thoughts that 
are timeless in art making. I mean, he's a he's a real he's a real guy. I mean, a wonderful wonderful man and a great artist when when he was alive. And Denver's got two dozen, three dozen great artists. I guess when we talk about the art scene, we rarely talk about the two dozen people that are really great artists, but we talk about the the fabric that holds it all together, which is usually three, four hundred people. I can't speak to them. I can't speak to their work and whether it's good or bad or otherwise. But what I can talk to is the mechanics. You know, I'm a business person, and I like being defined as a business person. And that I make art, or that I make work that can be judged as art, if you choose to, great. The mechanics of that are more important to me than the affiliations that I make inside the art community. In your opinion, what role, if any, should cities like Denver have in terms of supporting their creative communities? Don't subsidize artists for no reason. I mean, whatever subsidies you've got out there, great. Make them work. Drive people towards them. Educate them in business. DOCA does a good job, and so does Create Denver, of creating programs that educate artists to fiscal responsibility and economic viability. You want to know who really to, to work with? Landlords. Scumbag landlords. Give them a code of ethics that allows an artist to occupy a space long term, that gives them a tax break of some kind that says don't give an artist a one-year lease because you can't build a business on a one-year lease. If they want artists to act like business people, then give them five-year-long leases. Give them the options inside of those leases to treat that space as something fluid that they can grow and change and 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 uh, and grow up with in whatever sense. But it's it's landowners, landlords, property owners that have made it incredibly difficult for artists of any kind, especially the idea that equal equity for gender. Female artists working in any medium couldn't get space at 35th and Walnut because there's a crackhead on their door. There's no burden on the property owners to protect their tenants in these neighborhoods. And I think that making the space secure, making the space clean, don't turn, don't let property owners and landlords be in this kind of in virtuous or unvirtuous cycle of artists will always homestead and then they'll jack up the rents and then a retail business will show up and so on and so forth. Give them long-term leases, give them a chance to grow their businesses, give them a chance to be like businesses, and everything will change. Cool. Let's move on to next topic, which is focus on the family and their continued march towards nowhere. March towards oblivion. Uh, the, the recent news on this is that Focus on the Family is threatening. They haven't actually boycotted, but they've threatened to pull out of the uh, CPAC, which is the Conservative Political Action Conference. It's kind of an annual, I believe it's an annual sort of dog and pony show, but it's where kind of the Republican Party's leading lights are trotted out. And, you know, if you are running for president, you have to be at that conference they're threatening to pull out. And what's interesting is other kind of further right groups uh, like the American Family Council or Family Research Council. This year, the American Conservative Union is boycotting it. The Media Research Center, which is the right wing Brent Bazell outfit that you know monitors the liberal media, they're pulling them out, out of it. And they're all, all because of the uh, presence of one group, GOP Proud, which interestingly enough is not a gay rights organization. They are a gay gay Republican group, but they largely 
uh, push for fiscal policy, conservative f- fiscal policy. They don't they don't take a big stand on gay marriage. So that this is kind of interesting in the sense that a focus on the family didn't go all the way and pull out, but that they're threatening to to pull their funding of the conference for next year. This is also comes in a context over the last you know, since the economy tanked, they've shed. I, I want to say 20% of their staff. Uh, I'm not totally sure, but a significant amount of their funding has been cut. Uh, James Dobson, their founder and sort of, uh, you know, cult figure, their, their Kim Jong-il. What is this organization that's one of the largest and most powerful organizations in the religious right going to do? I would argue that, they're, that the traje- trajectory is such that they're going to be as marginal as the John Birch Society or the Council of Conservative Citizens meaning that they're a presence, but they're not going to be in the mainstream of American political life anymore. Clearly, we've seen a reduction in their, in their presence in their political sway. However, we still have this fringe of the fringe mentality going on in this country, where a good chunk of population still seems to be attracted to these inflammatory, extreme opinions. Right now, that seems to be kind of swinging towards this whole kind of Tea Party mentality, but who's to say in four, five, six, ten, twenty years, the religious conservatism isn't going to once again pull some All right, of I'll say it. Back. <laughs> who's to say? I'll say it. And the, and the reason mainly is because one of their main... I mean, there's always the abortion issue. That's just kind of at a stalemate, I, is my sense of, a sense of it. But on gay rights, they, which has really been their organizing tool, especially, I mean, remember... But what did they come to power with? Was it abortion? It was abortion. It was abortion. abortion. Yeah, abortion. The that, whole time. Yeah, and but th- there's really that that there's no new fronts on that. But on, in terms of gay rights and and the culture war, they're clearly losing. I, I, clearly, um, just in terms of the poll numbers, especially young people, even young people who are not liberal, um, are do not have a problem with gays. Um, I just, I don't see them, I don't see it that much changing in abortion politics and reproductive rights politics to really catapult them into the forefront. Yeah, let's, let's anchor it on gays for a second and then let's ask ourselves how popular is, um, the Ku Klux Klan or David Duke, you know, the, the, their power and influence has been waning for a hundred years. And it's, and it's because America's figured out how to grow beyond sort of the boundaries of its, early leaders who said, this is how we maintain or hold on to power. And it's always been the, the nature of power is that those who have it want to keep it. And so they, you know, they became an anchor against something that they had really strong feelings about, but nobody understood. And as the issues came up and up and up and everybody grew up around them, it's like it's really difficult. And this is by no means difficult for me. I've been you know, pro-gay for an incredible amount of time, but I think it's more and more difficult for people to be anti-gay in the sense that, like, what are we against? People? (laughs) Right? (laughs) When it was an issue, it was an issue, right? When it seemed to combat uh, the values that we grew up with, if my parents were given a choice in 1960 or 1972 when I was three years old to say homosexuality is uh, something which we want to make sure that there's equal rights around and so on and so forth, they'd be like, to hell with that. I got a three-year-old son. He's all man. He's a boy. Blah, blah, blah. You know, and that's fine. I mean, I give my parents a lot of latitude for when they grew up and how they grew up. But these days, it's not issues. It's people. It's human beings. 
focus on the family, if we say that they were a anti-gay rights sort of group, then they've lost their moxie. It's all over, right? The same way that we could say the plan's over, right? If it's all about brownness, we're pretty much done on that, <laughs> right? But if they're about something else, then maybe they've still got some legs. And if they have other issues in their wheelhouse, if they have other issues to play with, then it might become decentralized and it might look a lot more like seeding the Tea Party or seeding other groups that organize in a very vague sense with issues. But I don't know what else they got in their wheelhouse. Well, here's kind of a darker question then. Could it be a bad thing that the conservative right is starting to lose power? The fact that, yes, they have very clearly been anti-gay and other kind of extremist issues, but at least, or theoretically at least, it was kind of couched in this concept of family values. The real, the real conservative battle isn't about, about body issues. It's not about body politics anymore. The real conservative issues are financial, they're fiscal. I think that the whole shift, like when you look at, uh, what was I re-exposed to just recently? The, the, um, the freak out, right? The, the mad money freak out when he's screaming at the Fed to open the window, right? <laughs> Where he's screaming at the Fed at one point to open the window, which is to sell, to buy more bonds and to give up, give more money out there. And it's the beginning of subprime, right? The subprime crisis. Yes. This right here, that's the battleground because it's how do you give more money to those who have it? How do you protect them? It's not about the body politic. It's not about gender and race. We're done with that. It's over. Gender and race is like, talking about gender and race is like talking about child labor, chimney sweeps. Right. <laughs> it's an old issue. It's a super old issue. It's like a Victorian issue. Should we have children in, in chimneys? <laughs> well, they're the only ones that fit besides the midgets, you know? And midgets get paid better to be in the circus. That's true. Yeah. I, I'd only add that the game, the, the real game over will be when, you know, the Welsh guy who came out, Welsh rugby player is the first, only, the only male professional athlete to come out on a team sport. You're laughing. But no, no. Um, uh, a leading member, of, uh, you know, a star player in the NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball comes out while they're playing. I feel like once that happens, then it's, then it's really game over. That's that's it. That's the biggest cultural hurdle left. And Tim Tebow, they, we are looking at you in this matter. <laughs> yeah. we, well, actually, you know, here's here's the 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 icing on top of that, and they have to be good. Yes. Yeah. No. Agree. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. It can't be, be really true. good. It can't be middle mid level. You know, yeah. you can't be batting two twenty. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the TED conference and um, or the TED phenomenon, which I know Joel is something you you know a lot more about than I do. Uh, why don't you give us kind of overview of how it started and and how it's kind of decentralized? I'll talk a bit about it, and then I want to hand it off to Rick because actually Rick uh, gave a talk at the TEDx conference this past summer in Boulder. But kind of in short, TED is the seminar series that has been now sweeping the country for a couple of years. It started in California as this semi-elitist, technology-focused and culture-focused seminar series. And now it's spread to these community-organized uh, TED conferences called uh, TEDx Boulder well, and Ricky so forth. Ricky Saul Worman founded TED years ago, right? And Ricky Saul Worman, Richard Saul Worman, was one of the better and more established information designers in the U.S., and he launched TED as a very a highly exclusive conference that was about technology, 
entertainment, design, some part of it education based, but really it wasn't a it wasn't a feel good ideas worth sharing organization for a long time. Ten years ago it was bought. I think it was ten. It might have been a little bit longer. It was Chris Anderson of the yeah. Wired magazine. Right. Like and so it was bought by him. And, and he kind of shifted into this more kind of populist approach. Yes. So I've just been fascinated by the growth of this seemingly old-fashioned populist salon-type concept that really seems to have taken on some legs. I think um, the idea of ideas worth sharing, this piece of it where um, sharing became the critical part of it and it became something that was uh, recorded and and redistributed vis-a-vis the Internet, the whole idea of that changed the mechanics of it. I think that more people want to know more about the best things that are going on and that relying on the top 100 people on the speaking circuit when it came to either sustainability or new media or any sort of technological shift, you know, that just went away. I think it's a combination of things now. How, um, did, how much of it has to do with, and I'm really, you know, speaking from no experience here, but how much of it has to do with how fast technology is changing? Right. That, that's got to be fueling it, right? Sure. There used to be a lot of highly segmented uh, conferences, and I used to go to one in the Netherlands called The Doors, Doors of Perception, and it was a very smart conference. It, it could have been pre-TED in the sense of very intimate, about a thousand people all over the world. Everybody came and talked about their great ideas. So there, are, there have always been pockets of dialogues around the world, and some of them you have to travel to. You have to travel out of the U.S. for them. But TED, when that got reorganized, ended up being the repository for the best ideas. And the best ideas are global. They're not just in the U.S. So it changed it from being a U.S.-centered technology-slash-entertainment conference to being a global conference about the best ideas possible, the best ideas available at the time. What that does for it, especially that it's available via the web and that it's most people who watch videos don't go to the conference period so it's about the popularization of this and the continued creation of this elite sort of force of people that change the world now it seems like here in Colorado this idea is just now kind of catching on a, a DU I think is getting ready to have its a second TED conference and Boulder had a huge sold-out conference this past summer which Rick you spoke at that what was your reaction when you were first approached I was like, why? I think that their initial interest in me was based on the relationships I had with one of the co-organizers and that he knew I was an articulate guy. And he checked my interest. And I said, yeah, I'm interested, but I'm not sure what you want me to talk about. And he said, well, when you're ready to tell me what you talk about, we'll kind of firm this whole thing up. And then I got into a, a little bit of the, the work that I've been doing, especially in the philanthropic space. And I talked about the influence of, of design thinking in uh, the public school system and how I brought a little bit to it. I'm still unclear about whether the mission of TEDx as a community sort of organized piece is the same as the mission of TED. No, let's just explain the difference because TED is, you know, the big conference in Long Beach mm-hmm. where you have to pay $6,000. TEDx is a franchise deal. You do have to conform to certain – you have to apply uh, for a permit to call it a TED event. 
I think it has to talks can't be more than eighteen minutes. They have to be about technology, entertainment, media, design, the design. Yeah. Those are the parameters, right? So why aren't you sure that they are the same? What do you see as the potential kind of differences in the goals between these different conferences? I guess as the franchise gets bigger and bigger, it ends up being something about pulling leadership out of communities and showing off people who are doing things. If you look back at the, if you look back at TEDx Boulder, you might see a couple of political figures in that. And I don't know whether TEDx, I don't know whether TED is really explicitly a venue for political figures who want to talk about their policy or their ideas. And I think that most people have realized that this is about people who don't have a platform to gain a platform to talk about the best ideas, not about people who do have a platform already. So, so when it gets regionalized like that, I think that you end up pulling some people out that already have a platform and they want to go under the rubric of TED and that changes things. That changes it quite a bit actually because it's about branding this political figure or about branding this person under the sort of auspices and the, and the power and the authority that TED brings with it and they already have a platform. You know, they have either a, they're either a congressman or they're in the House of Representatives. I mean, it's it's really interesting what happens regionally when that gets pulled out. And so I I would be an advocate for making sure that the people who do present at the TEDx's around the, the world, you know, are people who otherwise don't have platforms. I think we got to wrap it up. So let's move on to loves and hates. Uh, Joel, why don't we start with you? Sorry, me. Okay, this. Uh... Last night I went to Lou's Food Bar, which is the new Frank Bonanno Gastropub, which is right in my neighborhood of Sunnyside, Northwest Denver. And I'm gonna love. I'm not gonna love on the fact that it's literally around the corner from my house. I'm not gonna love on the fact that the service there was a sparkling machine of efficiency. I'm not even gonna love on the uh, on the fried chicken, which I could literally spend a whole podcast talking about. I'm gonna love on the fact that as soon as we walked in the door with our three-year-old son. The Mater D handed us this little plastic bag of these kind of fancy, like pixie stick type things, which are these kind of wax covered uh, pipe cleaners. You know, it takes the concept of handing the little like wax crayons to just a whole new level. Literally, my son played with these things for like 45 minutes straight, which to me is a good sign that even some of Denver's fanciest restaurants are now realizing that in this day and age, you need to really kind of go out of your way to meet demands of families looking to have good meals. I think that's a really good sign. Rick, what do you got? God, on the food side, I just have to say that the uh, the guys at Jelly Cafe nailed the frickin' hollandaise. Really? That's where's, it? Where's, where's Jelly's Cafe? Brand new place, open this weekend, 13th and Pearl, Denver, great. They nailed the hollandaise. If you love Benedict, they nailed the hollandaise. And I have enormous concerns about hollandaise because <laughs> I love Benedict's and I've had failed hollandaise before. All right. I like that. Nailed the hollandaise. All right. I'm going to hate, uh, since you guys loved, I'm going back to one of our old uh, whipping boys, which is uh, Colorado Matters. The reason I'm going after them is, A, they're a mediocre radio show with a fantastic platform. If they produced that show on any other platform besides NPR, no one, they, we, they'd have as many listeners as, as we, we do. do. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> second, they interrupt, they interrupt the morning news for 10 minutes 
to to preview their show, which is often, I mean, is just like watching paint dry is too nice uh, to describe it. And, and the, the specific example, one of my beefs with them is they do they put flax on the air all the time. And as any journalist knows, yes, you do have to go to the spokesperson for such and such organization for comment. But comment means two sentences. Comment, if it's a radio show, means 20 seconds. Interviewing the marketing director of Snowmass about how they're marketing the Mastodon find. Oh my god, I had to think, are you serious? You're seriously spending the entire program with a flack, with a marketing director? And this is not the first time they've done this. This is lazy journalism. And I think, you know, when they list their producers, I think they have like six producers on that show, and that's the best interview they can come up with. That's my beef one. Second beef, second beef is, sorry, this is a double dose of hate. Um, double dose of hate is, they're, they're Do you playing. Ever love? Uh, yeah, I do love. I okay, do love. Um, rarely, du- rarely. <laughs> Double Dose of Hate is they're playing the, the journalist, look at the access we got with their conversation with the governor, the incoming governor, the outcoming governor, the governor's wife. Oh, my God. Don't get caught up in the access game. Just because you can get access to power doesn't make your show interesting. All right, that's all the lack of interest we have time for. At the Denver Diatribe. For Joel and Rick, we are out. <laughs>